Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. If you don't have it, go out and get it. Available on Android and iOS. A great source of Jewish news, entertainment, and the like. Uh, you can listen to Nachum every morning, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., JM the AM as well as great programming throughout the day. There's my station identification plug. And, uh, you know, we're now eight weeks or more into isolation. Big debate now over what happens with the country. And uh, Israel now opening up, as we've seen. Uh, Not just opening up, but also having a new government, which is a national unity government of some sort not entire unity uh when will they always have actual uh, um when will they actually have full uh unity in any country um that's a kind of a, a version of you know politics in general but uh we'll call it a unity government i think another brilliant political move from bb um as we've seen many political moves not just bringing Benny Gantz and Gabi Ashkenazi into his government um, and having goodies for everybody, in a sense, you know, ministerships, et cetera, the way the horse trading in Israel works. It's quite, uh, I think it's quite remarkable. You know, remember, we talk about this at the end of the election, and I've said the election's over, and now the second part begins, which is the ability to form a government, which is not so simple in Israel. Uh, not that difficult altogether, but, uh, you know, um, the fact that he split apart his opposition, split apart the blue and white party, that I don't think that they could have handled a fourth election, kind of forced them into uh, this deal that they're in. And let's see if it works. I mean, Israel really needs... Well, let me step back for a second. Israel is really, as we've seen, a center-right country. I know that the media here and the interpreters like to think of Kahova Lavan or Blue and White as a mostly uh, center-left type party. Really, a lot of it is ex-Likudniks, obviously to the right. Uh, the um, Shinui, Lapid, and his people have, who have generally been more concerned with domestic issues and leaning right on security issues. The consensus in Israel is what we would consider here in the U.S. to be on the right, to be right-wing, in a sense. And the fact that Israel is now headed towards that type of government should not be a surprise. Uh, Should not be a surprise at all to anybody. Um, It is obviously a surprise to some of the Americans and Europeans and the way they interpret things isn't a surprise to some people on the left. They didn't think it would happen because, you know, everybody campaigns as anti-BB and then they go along with BB. Uh, but the bottom line is Israel, and we've seen, you know, if you look at the contrast between Israel and the U.S., and obviously they're very, very different. Very different countries, the scale, the scope. I saw... As far as that, but they, Israel has just handled the coronavirus crisis. They've handled it well, uh, with very definitive 
and decisive action that we can be jealous of here in the U.S. And what do I mean by that? You know, Israel has one has the benefit essentially having one government, one authority. They don't have to deal with a patchwork of the federal government, you know, steps in, steps back here in the U.S., conflicts between the states, individual states, conflicts between localities. I mean, look at the competition for getting what's known as PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, despite whatever you might hear out there, it is available. It's not available. The administration did a great job, etc., I will tell you firsthand, firsthand, my friends, the PPE situation at a certain point several weeks ago was literally dire here in New York. And if you think about it, and this is kind of a new reality for those of us in EMS, is that every patient, if you're assuming they're a COVID-19 patient, every single patient should, should, if you're doing it the best way, should get a new set of personal protective equipment. That means that you have a gown, you have gloves, really two pairs of gloves, you have goggles, you have a face shield. You have an N95 mask and a surgical mask. Sometimes the patient also gets a surgical mask. And you take those and you expose yourself to the patient with the PPA. You don the gear, just to use the professional terms. You're done. You doff the gear, meaning you take it off and you take it off appropriately and with precautions. And this doesn't always happen. And you go on, and then when you see the next patient, you do this similar type of thing. And, you know, kind of that's what that you, what you've seen in the movies, because that's actually, or on TV, because that's actually what's supposed to happen. So instead of doing that, and that's expensive, right? I mean, gloves are not that expensive. But gowns can go 3 to $5.00. Masks, as you saw, the N95 masks, which became very short supply, went from $2 to $10. That's per mask. Surgical masks went from $0.50 cents to $5. That's per mask. Goggles, several dollars. Face shields, which in theory are very easy to produce and very easy to make. It's just a piece of plastic with some straps. Those things are really supposed to be disposed of so that you don't carry the infection with you, don't carry the virus with you to other places. And that's not just every nurse and every doctor, but even the people who are cleaning, even the people who are transporting patients, even the people who are, I mean, anybody who is in touch with a COVID type of area. And as I said, it's particularly the EMS world. Every call you go to, you're supposed to, you should have protective equipment in order to protect yourself and not carry the virus to others. And that's the key. You want to slow the spread. And guess what? If you're going to be handling, and if you're going to be seeing 10, 20, 30, 40 patients that day, you should have 40 sets of PPE. But that's not what hospitals started to do. They started to say the whole shift, you would sit there as a 
nurse or a doctor, you would sit there the whole day with that equipment. And that is a sure recipe. I mean, for, if you keep it there and you keep it on and you keep it, you know, you pro- you're probably personally going to protect yourself, but there is a strong chance that you're carrying around the virus for a lot of the day. So what I'm saying here is it's impossible to deny that there was a PPE shortage because there was. I know the president had a little instance with a nurse yesterday that it was National Nurses Day yesterday. And again, once again, we have to thank all the healthcare workers out there. Frontline, EMS, and it's not just EMS, it's fire department and the police department, all first responders, and nurses, doctors, and the cleaning crews, and the orderlies, orderlies, I guess, I don't know if that's the right word anymore, but the people who move the patients around in the hospital. Just to say what happened, you had a nurse in the Oval Office, and Sophia Thomas, president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, and she said that PPE was not ideal, and this is an unprecedented time, and the infections control, the infection control measures that we learned back when we went to school, one gown and one mask for one patient per day, this is a different time adding that she has now been reusing a single N95 mask for a few weeks now. She said PPE has been sporadic, but it's been manageable, and we do what we have to do. So the president jumped in there, not to be one to accept the facts on the ground, but to bend them essentially to his narrative, and he said... Sporadic for you, but not sporadic for a lot of other people. Because I've heard the opposite. I have heard that they are loaded up with gowns now. We had empty shelves and empty nothing because it wasn't put there by the last administration. Okay, I'm not here to knock President Trump on this. I think it's, an un- I, I, again, I feel, and I've said this before, is that, and maybe I'm just, don't understand how these things work, but there is room in this crisis, there is room in this crisis to accept the fact that things didn't go perfectly, that some of the planning wasn't done, that the China ban wasn't exactly a ban when still tens of thousands of people, American citizens did, came into the country and they weren't quarantined, they weren't tested. Uh, during the month of February, and the virus was clearly spreading during February and as early as January, many places. And clearly, it was just going around and the asymptomatic. We didn't understand the virus, and we learned and we made mistakes because of that. But to be in total denial as far as there was a mistake and to take the victory lap, which is what's going on now, hopefully it won't come back to bite the administration and the president and his campaign because things will continue to improve. And I hope that that happens. And I I really, I sincerely hope that that happens. But I just think that you have to, there is a level of, given the death hole, given what has happened, given the devastation of what's going on in the United States right now, and it continues to happen, 
you have to accept the idea of, number one, some responsibility. But the fact is that some things did not go as planned. Testing did not go as planned. PPE distribution did not go as planned. Or if there was a plan. And if there wasn't a plan, there should have been. Back to Israel for a second, and I want to do it, is that the ability of Israel to just orders and order things to happen based on data and hard data that they have and be able to track spread and the way they've done it with cell phones, it's definitely, it's a, it's a model. I mean, it's the closest model that we can think of. And even in Israel, the death toll uh, was, and the infection toll was significant, particularly uh, particularly in the Haredi community, which was difficult. So Israel will now have a new government. The opposition to the new government went to court and they lost. The high court is not exactly pro-Netanyahu. And we will see. Now we have a president, uh, now we have a prime minister in Israel who is under indictment. Who will potentially be going to trial. And it's a brave new world. So what's going on in the world right now? Well, there's so, I mean, there's so much. There's so much. Uh, the president said that he was going to disband, or actually, I guess Mike Pence actually said that the White House Coronavirus Task Force will be disbanded soon by the end of May. The president walked that back um, the next day. He said, uh, it's been very popular. The he was surprised by how popular it was. Now the president's basically been off the air, meaning he's not doing the briefings. It's a big hole in uh, our daily entertainment. Uh, no question, no matter how you feel about the president, whether you like him or you don't like him, these briefings are entertaining. They are, and that's I think a lot of the president's appeal to people is his ability to spar and to look. To project a, uh, to project the fact that he's fighting for because he's fighting with the media and many people don't like the media because he's fighting with them. Uh, the country is opening up in many cases, in many states, and many states are opening up and opening businesses and doing it, even though their levels of positive tests are rising, and in some cases the death tolls are rising, which of course is is troubling. Um, you know, not impossible and not suggesting that everybody shouldn't be able to, every state should be able to make decisions for themselves. I just think overall we have to consider the fact that people are infected and even if they themselves don't get sick, they have the ability to make others sick. And that's difficult. I mean, the numbers themselves are just staggering. I know the president said a couple weeks ago, and the administration was saying fifty to 60,000 people will die. We're now almost at 75,000, possibly surpassing 75,000 this week. New York, 25,000 deaths, 333,491 
as of this morning. Positive cases. New Jersey, 133,000 cases. 8,500 deaths. Massachusetts, 72,000 cases. Illinois, 68,000 cases. California, 60,000 cases. Pennsylvania, 54,000 cases. Michigan, 46,000 cases. Florida, 38,000 cases. I think that Florida is up like 10,000 cases in the past week. Even though most of the state and most of the state is open. Texas, 35,000. Connecticut, 30,000. Georgia, 30,000. Louisiana, 30,000. Maryland, just below at 28,000. Maryland being a very small state. <clears throat> and there are definitely some troubling numbers out there. <coughs> but um, people need to work. People need money. People need businesses need money. They they can't they can't continue despite the trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the economy by the federal government. And that response has actually been quite remarkable how quickly that has happened. Excuse me. But it's still scary. And we have to consider the fact, again, that people who are vulnerable are not going to be able to leave or not be able to go anywhere, pretty much, for the coming months. And that's very difficult. That's very difficult for a lot of people to handle. Um, Because the spread, as things open up and as people get out there, is not going to... is going to pick up. And as more testing happens, it's going to pick up. So let's talk about the race for a second, because the fact that the president and others in the administration, Kayleigh McEnany, is now White House press secretary, regular briefings, well, not everyday briefings, but she's doing the briefings, she's sparring with the press. I think she held her own um, at yesterday's briefing when she was asked a question at the end, Essentially, do you take back the statement that President Trump will not allow the virus into the country? Uh, She read back all the reporting from various news outlets where they got their facts or they got their writing about the coronavirus wrong. Um, Okay, I mean, that's, you know, I think that is the what we've seen is just, you know, discredit the facts, but I don't know if it's the same type of playing field. Um, You know, one thing can be reported one way, and then based on new information, obviously people need to adjust. I don't think the Washington Post stands by the idea that the virus isn't a threat that they may have written back in January, because that was likely, and I don't know for sure, likely based on the information at the time. Remember, there was a time that we didn't think, that we assumed that the virus wasn't airborne, that it couldn't be, had to be transmitted via touch. There was a time that we also thought that the virus could only be transmitted by a symptomatic carrier, not an asymptomatic carrier. And that was obviously a big deal. It's a lot harder to track an asymptomatic carrier. Those were things that we're doing. Were those predictions on the part of the media? I'm not sure. 
Uh, I don't think the when you the tone of the questions, and I think President Trump was correct when he had his Fox News town hall at the Lincoln Memorial, which I thought was a wonderful backdrop. Um, yeah, obviously, I mean, he's the president; he gets to do that, and you know, there's the big contrast right now for him at the Lincoln Memorial versus Joe Biden uh, in his basement. But um, he said that the news media doesn't give him a fair shake. Everything's attack, attack, attack. And I agree with that. The, the questions are so slanted. There's like a implication in every question that kind of got you, we get you wrong, et cetera. But that's what reporters do. I mean, that's always been the way. And I think they've done that to every president. I don't think he's been treated necessarily worse than anybody else. So the briefing is back, and Kaylee McEnany is you know now talking about everything below millions of deaths is a huge victory for the president. And that's been the tone that the president has. If it's you now two million deaths, could have been two million, and I stopped it. Well, then you predicted a couple weeks ago that it was going to be fifty to sixty thousand. So now what happened? I mean, yes, this is unpredictable. We don't know, but we got to do the best we can. And again, I think that is the key. You know, we have to go ahead and think about that. And one thing we have to also consider is I know that there's this idea that, well, in the rural areas, in some of these areas, and it's true right now, but that can change. In certain counties, it's a prison or it's a nursing home or it's an assisted living facility. Those are the places where all the infections are. You might have... 50% of the infections in a certain facility that exists in some of these rural counties. But remember, it's not like these facilities, these skilled nursing facilities or the prisons are hermetically sealed. You have people who work there who go in and out every day. And the interesting statistic we saw yesterday in New York, which has the most data because it has the most cases, and I know we've talked about nursing homes and those, and I think the, I think the death rate is responsible for the most deaths, but 66% of infections, I'm sorry, of hospitalizations in New York State have been from people who are staying home or coming from home, who were home, who were staying home. So, even the meaning the virus is extremely contagious. And that brings us back, I think, to when we talk about, well, actually, two more things before I get to the, you know, kind of our closing segment is that. Uh, extraordinary piece in the New York Times from David Pluff and David Axelrod, the two architects of Barack Obama's winning campaigns, saying essentially saying to Joe Biden, "You better not. You got to figure out a way to get out there." Um, you know, I don't. I think the Biden people have this idea that you're just going to wait it out, let Trump mess it up, and there is a capacity for that to happen, and somehow you're going to slide in there. You have to, if you, this election, I think, has to be a referendum 
on the president and the job that he's done. And that's typically how a one term, you know, you make a one term president. That's what happened with uh, George H.W. Bush on the taxes issue. And that's what happened with Jimmy Carter. You know, he couldn't handle the job. And that's, you know, that's something that worked. Uh, if you make it a referendum on Joe Biden, which I'm sure the Trump, I mean, the Trump campaign is definitely trying to do, and amazing thing, they're embracing these sexual harassment uh, allegations, which have never come up. And I'm not saying, I'm not judging the veracity, but I'm saying it's, you know, Joe Biden was vetted to be vice president. It's unlikely, at least in my humble opinion, that they wouldn't have thought about this. Or I'm sorry, they wouldn't have uncovered some scintilla of whiff about this allegation, especially since she claims she told people. But of course, the staff doesn't remember. Okay, we'll leave that aside. But they're going to go hard after Joe Biden. They have to expect, the Biden campaign has to expect that the Trump campaign will do everything they can to make sure he gets a second term. And sitting in the basement and not somehow not functioning as a campaign and not having a role. I mean, Pence and Trump both traveled this week. Pence is traveling a lot, going to swing states, going to Indiana, Minnesota, Iowa. President going to Arizona, another swing state. He's going out there. And they're getting out there and they look like they're doing the job. Even if the number isn't there, they actually look like they're doing the job. And the pictures the American people see are of them doing the job. And what they see is Joe Biden in his basement. So I'm not a Democratic strategist, but you got to figure it out in order for that to happen. And speaking of elections, June 23rd, it looks like in New York State, a successful lawsuit happened where Andrew Yang, who was a withdrawn candidate, petitioned that the primary election happened, the Democratic primary election happened on June 23rd, and he won in federal court. Now, this will probably be appealed, but it is amazing in the time of a national emergency and a health emergency, particularly a virus that is ripping across New York State. You're going to force people to go vote and poll workers to deal with a statewide election because you have some vanity need to have your delegates at the Democratic National Convention, which may or may not even happen. That's the amazing part. We don't even know if the convention is going to happen over the summer. I mean, this is talk about a waste of government resources. Talk about just a waste altogether. I mean, why you're having a Democratic primary, they're going to have a vote potentially in New York for an election that's already over. Every candidate has conceded. There's only one candidate actively running anymore. I don't know. Politics is funny or politicians are funny. All right. We must talk about Bill de Blasio and the targeting of the Hasidic community by the police in the wake of that fiasco last week with the funeral in Williamsburg. And over the weekend, the police were out in force, and you saw the incredible contrast of them handing out masks to those who didn't have them in various parks. But when we came to Hasidic Jews in Borough Park and Williamsburg, and possibly elsewhere, tickets, violations, appearance tickets. And of course, Bill de Blasio, friend of the Jewish community, and everybody's out there to do that. And, you know, so much so that, I mean, I, I agree. You don't, he's not anti Semite. He just got his language wrong. And in true Bill, Bill de Blasio fashion, he can't, he's not able to apologize for it because he doesn't really know how to do that. But 
the fact that he has worked well with the Jewish community and the fact that he has done this essentially out of spite and revenge is a cautionary tale to people. People should be shocked. They should be offended. They should be outraged by this. That the city has now, the city of New York, and some people say, well, Bill de Blasio is irrelevant. Well, no, he has the ability to go ahead and target a specific group of people. In this case, our co-religionists. And it was shameful last week, and it's shameful this week. And I want to close just talking about for a second about this, the push that we have throughout the Orthodox community for Mignanum and outdoor Mignanum, informal porch Mignanum, quote-unquote. I want to read a very quick letter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But the idea that the Atlanta Jewish community in Georgia, which is a state that is open, all the Rabbanim in Atlanta have chosen to continue to close their shuls. And they have said that we've determined that the facts do not yet warrant any change from our focus on protecting people from a disease that has proven deadly to many. For the time being, we will not be opening our shuls for any type of minion, and we continue to maintain our strict ban on private minyanim. In addition, we strongly request continued adherence to social distancing measures, including forbidding visitors from out of town and having guests over for Shabbos meals. With thanks to Hashem, our community has thus far largely escaped the ravages of the coronavirus, unlike here in New York. They've escaped them. And then they say, I'm going to paraphrase in the interest of time, every day that passes without communal prayer is a significant loss. We have chosen to pay this heavy price because the stakes in human life are high. Halacha requires strict adherence to measures that will save lives. And that's it. And that's the bottom line. Halacha requires strict adherence to measures that will save lives. Be safe out there. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. Thank you.